0: The, the, the fundamentals and they only know how to think about a problem in one way and how to solve it in one way versus thinking about a problem and then looking at the problem and assessing, well, could I use this technique to solve it? Could I use this strategy to solve it? So we're not training problem solvers as much as we are training people that are very scripted and who depend on a lot of crutches to solve problems.
1: So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder, why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is The Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to money talkers. I have Ryan Frederick here with me today. Ryan is a founder, entrepreneur, angel investor, and product designer. He launched a nonprofit IC stars in which he instituted a workforce development program to train underrepresented communities on digital skills, which I think is amazing. He is also the author of the book, the founder's manual aside from his deep knowledge in entrepreneurship and finance, Ryan is a pillar in his community and loves to talk to folks, about how they can achieve success. And so that fits right into the money talkers wheelhouse. And so, with that, welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, man, I am super excited to hop on with you. You've got a wide array of uh, background and experience and those kinds of things. And so, I really want to dive into the workforce development program with you off the bat, just because I find it so fascinating of what you're able to do with that about uh, targeting into underserved communities and and bringing digital skills into there. And so can you walk me through how that kind of started and the mission? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking about it. Um, So it's called Icy Stars
0: and it's I letter i letter c stars Um, and that stands for inner city computer stars and it started in chicago actually and the program in chicago is now 21 years old they celebrated their 20th anniversary last year and i came across the program probably eight years ago or something like that and um was fascinated by it loved the model and then, and then launched their first expansion outside of Chicago in Columbus, and um, our intent is to um, help underrepresented um, and socioeconomically challenged people to get digital skills to really change their life trajectory and and hopefully generationally change the trajectory uh, of their of their families. Um, and it, it, you know, for me, I think skill attainment is the great equalizer if you have skills that you can monetize either through employment or through entrepreneurship now you have a chance right if you have no skills that you can monetize at a in an acceptable desirable level right then you have virtually no chance for prosperity and so for me it was it was all about and still is how can we give people and, and sort of level the playing field and, and you know, give them, give them a ladder up, you know, by giving them um, some digital skills training that can um, change really the
1: trajectory of their life and certainly of their, their earning power and potential. Yeah, you know, it's almost like uh, it's it, it a mindset flip from I hope I get a job to strategically saying, okay, where's a high paying position that can, you know, my skill set is going to allow me to kind of dictate where and what I want to do.
0: Yeah, Would I mean, you if agree? you yeah, totally, because you can, look, any of us can go work in McDonald's and, you know, and not to denigrate McDonald's and not to denigrate anybody that working at McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's when I was in high school for two years um, and, it, you know, allowed me to, you know, go to the movies and, and things like that, so. Hungry I, Howie's and Papa John's for me, but. There you go, I <laughs> mean, it, and and so there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, right, but there's, it, I think it's appropriate if you're gonna have a, a life of prosperity at a certain point in your life, right? And then I think beyond that, you better have some skills that are that are monetizable at an acceptable level. And now, if you learn how to code, or you learn how to test software, or you learn how to design software, right? You you are going to have a skill that's monetizable at a very high level, very high earning potential for a very long time. It's very and defensible. So, exactly. And so yeah. we look at it as as you know, not a. And I think it's become sort of a. A societal imperative, right? Because if if um, if if we we're we're at a crossroads, I think too, where over the last you know two decades, probably vocational training became frowned upon, right? If you weren't going to university or college, and if you weren't getting a degree in communications or history or something like that, that somehow you were you were a lesser person and you weren't that smart. And I think that we've got to shift back to if if you go to vocational training, which now could be learning how to code, that's probably actually a more prosperous path than if you go to a university and get a degree in in natural history or something. So I think we also have to look at the practical matters of it, right? And and I think as parents, um, and as 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 young people, we need to look at it and say what's right for me, and and not not. And not worry about what's going to be aligned with societal norms, but what's right for me and, and what's my trajectory. I mean, I would love to see somebody Go to a welding Institute and learn how to be a welder right then. Then if going to university and getting a communications degree is, is, you know, is not in the cards for them.
1: Well, plus you, you're, you're probably going to go about, I don't know, five grand in the hole first 200,000 or $150,000 that we're just, you know, we're saddling these kids with without a plan to to get them out of it. You know, I can yeah. go off on, on the student loan process in a heartbeat because I find it to be one of the most predatory pieces that we do as a society. And it's the debt is larger than any, you know, all car and all credit card debt. And so, um, you know, you're giving a pen to a kid and offer him $150, $200,000, but you don't teach him anything about money in the first place. He doesn't even know what a loan is. You just say there's no payments for four years and they go, Oh, okay. You know, here's, right. a, here's, here's a party pass. Right. Right.
0: And, <laughs> the, and if, right. And if that converts into them making, you know, $35,000 a year, right. Coming out of college and they're going to make $35,000 a year for the next, you know, 8 to 10 years of of their their life, right? When do when do they start earning enough to to ever pay for that and the other things that they need to pay for to live? So I agree with you. I think that that it's become a societal norm that, that and then the infrastructure around it financially to support that societal norm is in many cases broken. Certainly there was lots of people that have used student loans effectively and well, but for lots of people, they ended up getting a degree that they're not really using and they can't leverage monetarily
1: and that they're in debt for. So, um, I well, think to your that, point, like I, I just, you know, you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, well, uh, I, the vocational gap though has created tons of opportunities there right so like you say like a welder you know uh there are a lot of welders making six figures lots right and and they've and it's the time frame to train for that is much shorter much less costly but we're not we're not using common sense when we're underwriting these kinds of things and we're and we're we're pushing these kinds of things out and which is one of the reasons like it bothers me so bad that we don't we don't teach these things into our schools at all because we're we're not it's almost like giving a kid and asking him to write a doctorate Without ever teaching them English, you know, like where 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 are we going with this? You know, right? And so <laughs> well,
0: because there's there's no there's no glamour right in in being a welder societally, and there's no glamour of being a plumber, and there's no glamour of being a painter, right? I'll tell, you, uh, I'll
1: tell you what, I know some electricians that make serious
0: money. You know, oh absolutely. <laughs> I, I've got a a friend of mine that owns a a plumbing you know company and. You know he and I won't mention the name of the company or the person, uh, but you know he he's got a multi-million dollar house and and he's got and he doesn't even have that big of a company. He's got like twenty plumbers working for him, so it's not like it's a massive enterprise, but it's incredibly profitable given the size of the company, because there are so many people that, that I mean they they're busy every day all day because there aren't enough plumbers, there aren't enough electricians, right? So the, the, the scales have been flipped where we've said societally doing those vocational things, isn't that interesting and isn't that cool, right? Yet the people doing them are now doing very well be, because supply and demand is on their side, right? Yeah. Because there's the supply, right, is, or the demand is still there, but the supply isn't there. So those who are in those vocations actually can do really well right now.
1: Well, I feel like there's a great reckoning too as well because we've entered an education age out of the edu- out of the information age. Whatever you want to learn, to, whatever you want to learn, you have so many options now that I think that there's a reckoning into the college system that's going to happen just because of the fact that it, it used to be you had to go to where the information was if you I wanted think, to learn it. I think so, but my biggest concern around that is going to be if the if the
0: company hr talent acquisition people don't then you know sort of stand up and say hey these these positions that we now say bachelor's degree required right then uh, there could be it could be a delayed flip right because people who are learning to code online and who who are learning to become designers Mm -hmm. online you know etc right now, they wouldn't qualify for a lot of positions out there because many of those positions say bachelor's degree required, yet all they've done is go to a boot camp or go to um, go through, you know, Udacity or, or, you know, one of those other programs and and learned online. Now, they're probably more qualified. They're probably now, they've probably skilled up faster than the people who have gone to a college university,
1: yet they don't have the piece of paper. Well, they're probably also learning more relevant stuff, right? Because in your world with coding, like what I learned, if I learn, if, if by the time I've written a textbook on how to do it and it's three years later and I'm using that textbook, like how far out of the real world am I at that point? Oh yeah. It, 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 it's immense, right? <laughs> the, the pace of change in those spaces
0: is, um, and frankly, most, you know most universities and colleges are teaching things about the, the, the new jobs, right the next generation of jobs that is updated because at my product firm, we interview developers all the time right to join our team, and many of them coming out of colleges and universities are um, learning techniques and, and languages that are that are 10, 15, 20 years old. Um, and if it and if an individual doesn't take it upon themselves to learn the current stuff, you know, then then they're not that they're not that, um, then they're not that interesting to us.
1: Well, a lot of times by that point, we've got this ten to fifteen year old stuff. We've developed something that will do that for us right and so <laughs> it's almost like you have to you, you, you've already you know uh I laugh because I, I saw somebody sent me a thing the other day it was like I'm laughing at my math teacher right now because she said I'd never have a calculator in my pocket all the time and it's like him holding a picture of his phone you know and I was like oh like, that's pretty funny you know so you find these things where there's defensible positions to where like you have to learn how to do the coding as as a mental piece more than the actual I would imagine than the work itself like whatever we were doing 10 years ago, there's a program that does that part of it for you and you have to do the next piece.
0: Yeah, and I think it's the practical, it's, it's understanding the, 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 the theories and the underlying, underlying foundations of things, right? Because yeah. programmers use a lot of math, right? Programmers use a lot of syntax. They have to understand logic. They have to understand how to solve problems in code. I bought a, I bought a, a cabin that's kind of a fixer-upper and i've been working on it with my with my 13 year old son and and we've been rebuilding some decks and part of figuring out you know how many deck boards do we need is math right because you look at it and say okay this this walkway's 30 inches wide the deck boards are 6 inches wide right so that means we need five going this way well how long is it how many do we need going that way and so it's a way to actually in a real world setting, apply fundamental theories and sort of understanding of, all right, if I know I'm working with this and I've got pieces that are this size, how many do I need? And, and, and it's been fun and it's been interesting to sort of see him processing it and go, ah, okay. I see how fractions, right, come into play. And I see, right. And so that's been, that's been a fun, interesting thing. But I think we, we, if we also get two, if we get two sort of, scripted with learning and education, then it's, we've not empowered, you know, kids to understand how to use the the, the fundamentals, right? To, it, and, and they only know how to think about a problem in one way and how to solve it in one way, versus thinking about a problem and then looking at the problem and assessing, well, could I use this technique to solve it? Could I use this strategy to solve it? So we're not training problem solvers as much as we are training people that are very scripted and who depend, depend on a lot of crutches to solve problems.
1: You know, that's a great point. And we, so I used to have a large company and we would have weekly meetings and um, there we, we introduced a theory where I think it was called the 10th man or the 13th man. I can't remember what it was called. It's an old thing from years and years, years, years ago. Um, but if everybody at the table was in agreement on the way to solve a problem, the last person has to come up with something different. Right, So at least you could play devil's advocate or break the theory of why it's not gonna work or try and introduce another theory because there are multiple, multiple ways to solve problems. And I think that at that point, you're teaching someone to think as opposed to memorize. And that's what kind of bothers me a lot of times when I think about what I went through with school. It's like, I got great grades. Do I remember even a, probably a quarter of the stuff that I got grades on? Probably not, you know. but once I got into the real world and entrepreneurship, I got a lesson on how to think. And I think that's one of the pieces why this is missing between money and entrepreneurship. You don't necessarily need to be an entrepreneur, but those people that are coming out, your buddy with the plumbing company, right? So he goes in, so maybe, yeah, it's not sexy to be a plumber, but you own the plumbing company and all of a sudden to get you into the piece where, okay, how do I build this business to where I can have 20 people working for me? He got out of the cycle and became a business owner. He's not a plumber anymore. He's not an right. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so I think that that's a big piece to where, where I, I think it would be a huge add on for young people to, to learn the concepts of problem solving, because that's ultimately what an entrepreneur is. It's just a problem solver, you know. Totally, totally agree. And you referenced, you know, the book that I wrote. And,
0: and one of the things that I say in there is, you know, by definition, I think entrepreneur equals problem solver. Yeah, because because you are trying to solve a problem at the beginning and and that's your sort of whole premise for starting the the company and and building the product or providing the service and then be and then the existence of an entrepreneur is an unending series of problems right somebody somebody doesn't show up for work right some client is upset and you know and, and wants a refund right a competitor you know, comes into your area, Um, a competitor comes out with a competitive product that's actually better than yours, right? Being an entrepreneur is is at its, you know, sort of initiation, you know, being a problem solver, and then it never changes from that, right? You're just a constant unending problem solver from that point on. So I love the fact that you look at it that way because I see a lot of people who say they want to be entrepreneurs and they want to be founders and they, but they don't understand that what that means is being a problem solver, and so they're very disconnected from what the what the reality of the circumstance is.
1: yeah, and there's some traps in there too, right? because if you're in that mindset and you go in there as the problem solver, you always think I think there's a there's a really there's a really tough cycle in there where you have to be the all the problem you have to solve all the problems at first, right, and then as you get into it you, there's a piece where you can get trapped thinking that you're the only one that can solve the problems. And yep. so as you, you have to go into your strengths and then you got to do analysis on the business. And that's thing that's where a lot of entrepreneurs get trapped anyway, is that they, they become the linchpin. And I have done that multiple times in my life. And there were bad outcomes when I became the linchpin. And when I didn't when I didn't resource my leverages, my problems weren't the ones that were coming in the door. My problems were before how to solve the ones that are going to come in the door,
0: right? Yep.
1: And that's as the growth came. And so, um,
0: well, there's I, also a big
1: difference between problems and obstacles, right? And opportunities um, too, because really, yeah. what you what you what you should do is you have to have a mindset of I'm going to solve the problems that come into the door. To I'm going to put people in place to solve those problems that come in the door, and and support them but I'm going to go solve opportunities now. And so yep. I can drive. Right. Cause I'm, yeah. the, I'm, I'm the one that started the company. I, this is my big pro. You get, I think you get away from the objective from the beginning and then move towards, okay, now I got to do the HR and the payroll and the, you know, the, the marketing, I have to do all the marketing myself and I have to do all the sales myself and I have to handle all the customer service myself and, you know, and you do those things and all of a sudden you're off whatever you started the company to do and you get stuck.
0: Yeah, well, and I think there's a couple of, of phases there that, that, that you've referenced. One is you're sort of the initiator, right? You get it off the running, get it up and running, and there's just enough traction to sort of keep it going, right? And then you become a good operator, and you, you, it grows a little bit more. You're a little bit more profitable. You can expand the team a little bit more. And then you have to evolve from being that good operator to then being a good leader, right? Yeah. And a good leader then maximizes the team, maximizes opportunities, and then allows the business to sort of grow, right, underneath them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people never, as you're describing, never get out of, some never get out of the initiator mode and actually become good operators. Some, a bigger bucket, then never grow from operators to leaders. And and many companies plateau, right, in that sort of operator-focused space because the the you know the owner, the founder, entrepreneur doesn't know how to evolve from that operator position and mentality to sort of a leader one.
1: And what's funny is that uh, most entrepreneurs that are visionaries will think that they are the best operators, but they're miserable at it. And we're not really the best operators usually. <laughs> There's, you know, you get short tempered, you get uh, you get frustrated because people don't see things the way you see them, and. And then a really good operator is usually somebody I, I've had, you know, I think I told you 14 businesses and four of them have done seven figures plus. And every one of those, I've had a really good operator beside me. The other 10, I didn't, right. And those all basically failed because it, I, I ping pong ball around things. And I'm, you know, it, it's, it's you, I think you have to have a driver in there that makes sure that you know, you stay on task and maybe, you know, that's one of the things that like, I don't necessarily think entrepreneurship is for everyone. I don't think everyone should own their own businesses. There are some amazing operators. Like, I think you should find your zone of genius and what you're good at and, and double down into that. And I think totally. that that's where a lot of success comes from.
0: Totally. Uh, one of the things I, I write about in the book is that I think that actually most people should not be entrepreneurs. Um, because I think that that, and if you think about being an entrepreneur, it goes against almost every aspect of human nature, and it goes against the, the hierarchy in almost every way, right? Because it, it's 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 not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be constant. It's not going to be secure. Um, and it, it, there isn't any aspect of it that is supported by nature, nurture, education, and and society, really, right? And so the, and, unless you go into it understanding sort of the counterintuitive nature of it and how the best things are often the things that, that are are not obvious uh, through the process, it's probably going to be a very frustrating and probably a very aggravating existence. And most people don't, don't understand the dynamics of it, and so they get into it, and it's not what they think it's going to be, and it's not what they uh, – um, sort of heard that it was going to be, and then and then they don't know what to do, right? And then they sort of just get they just get paralyzed.
1: You mean it's not all Instagram pictures and jets and uh, <laughs> Ferraris? So you're trying no. to tell me here, Ryan? <laughs> the, the the grind is real, as it turns out. <laughs> really, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, you know, I I, um, I I laugh about that, but I think that um what is what what helped me to go through those patterns and to be able to build a fairly large business was the continuation of education and leverage, right? Mentors, um, and, and mentors don't necessarily even have to be a person. Mentors can be books, right? But a lot of people think, well, you know, I I know my business better than anybody else, but that's fine. But you don't know business yet, right? It's not the same subject. What you may be the most, uh, you know, skilled graphic designer on the planet. You may be a wonderful, um, you know, uh, implementer for, uh, SEO and leads and everything else. And so you've got tons of leads and you get a great graphic designer. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to run a business of graphic design. Right. And so I feel like there's, there's ways to, there's, there's very, there's very big ways to leverage information and mentorship to where you can avoid a lot of those things, or I wouldn't say avoid them. I would say understand how to train to handle them prior to them coming up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, and there, yeah, I agree. There's a huge difference between being a crafts person and being a business person. A lot of crafts people start services firms thinking they, they want to be their own boss to apply their craft and they want to hire, you know, others like, you know, my friend that owns the, owns, owns the plumbing business. And, but there's a huge difference between being that crafts person and being the business person. And if you don't understand what those differences are, you, you probably are going to have a rude awakening, you know, through the process uh, and that evolution from craft person to business person.
1: So I want to shift a little bit on, and, and it's almost on the same thing, but so uh, we talked a little bit offline about liking to build, right? And I know that you do a lot of work with startups and those kinds of things. And so tell me a little bit about what you're doing with startups, how you got into it, how do you find them, you know, those, kind, what do you look for? you know, kind of walk me through those ideas.
0: Yeah, got into it very uh, accidentally, um, really. Uh, did not come from an entrepreneurial family and background, but I also knew for whatever reason, there's something in just my DNA and psyche that, you know, much like you was talking, you know, we were talking earlier, I'm not a big company person. I, I don't like a lot of bureaucracy. I don't like a lot of, you know, um, process for no reason, you know, et cetera. And I recognized that really early on so I had the opportunity to join what at the time was we just called it a small business because we didn't call you know small businesses startups back then. And uh and joined that team and we grew that company and then out of that identified another problem and the investors in the first company invested in the the second company that 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 we started and and so it just became this this you know sort of self-fulfilling prophecy right through it, but you know, very lucky and, and very opportunistic. And the one thing I would say is, is, I often think it's better to be opportunistic and then get strategic than to try to be incredibly strategic, right, but not around an opportunity. And, and so I think that people who um, are opportunistic and then get strategic inside of an opportunity have a much better chance of success than people who build out some grand plan and vision but it's not built on a kernel of opportunity, right? Um, you can have a massive strategy that, that is, has a big hole in the middle because there's, there's very little opportunity inside of it. So how do you identify that? <clears throat> I, it, c- customers get into the market, right? Get, and and un- do you understand the problem at an expert level? Um, one of the things that, that, that I talk about a lot is, I don't think that you can build a product and then build a company around that product um, that is going to be successful. If you don't understand the problem at an expert level, because you're, you're not going to be able to build a product that solves that problem. If you don't understand the problem at an expert level, and you're not going to be able to convince customers to buy the product and why the product is a value to them. And it's going to give them a new reality that they want if you don't understand the problem at least as well as they do if not better i think you even need to understand it better than the customers do
1: i don't know what that commercial is but there's one and, there's, and the, the girl's sitting there and they're talking about her being in the office about really like forced to go to a birthday party they wouldn't attend and it's like unnecessary tech and like the little the intern is like flying a drone in and it's got coffees and it like runs into the wall and drops all the coffees and like that's kind of what i think of it was like you can build unnecessary tech. A lot of times (laughs) you can build unnecessary products. If people don't want it, it doesn't matter.
0: Right. And I think that, and this is all about increasing your odds. Right. And if it, it, in the world, most of the world doesn't need more stuff and more products. And, and most of the stuff that gets built has very little chance of being successful and, and being commercially viable yet people spend an, an unreasonable amount of time, energy, and money trying to essentially fit a square peg into a round hole. right? And if they just spent more time on the hole and on the problem, then they they eventually might get to the point of, of being able to solve it in a meaningful way. And I actually think that that's true. I think that you don't even have to be that smart. You don't even have to be that capable. But I think if the average person spends an inordinate, and I think that's the key, an inordinate amount of time understanding a problem, eventually they will find a way to solve it in a meaningful way. But what happens because of human nature is, as soon as we think we have an inkling of a problem, we wanna solve it. And now we're solving it in a low value, low value superficial, not meaningful way that is gonna have no ability to gain any sort of traction and, and market adoption.
1: So, where do you find your startups to to invest in, to help, to um, to mentor? Where does where do you find these kinds of opportunities?
0: Yeah, most of it comes now, and it's really just because I'm old, um, through uh, through my network, and you know, people you know reaching out and and e- either someone making an introduction or someone reaching out and saying, "Hey, I was talking to so and so, and they should and they said I should talk to you," and it could be about my product firm helping them to build their product. it could be about investing. it could be about just giving them advice and and sort of mentoring them and being a sounding board. But most of it comes now from um, my network and and you know it's it's um and I don't know if that's good or bad, um frankly, because I think one of the challenges that we we have in any sector is, how do you drive and facilitate awareness and access, right? So if, if you know, when I, was, when I was a young lad, if, it, if I hadn't been fortunate and gotten access into a, a company that turned out to be a startup and the access to those investors and an awareness to the sort of how the whole process worked, my life would have gone a very different direction. So how do, you, how do we foster that awareness and that access um, beyond it being very serendipitous, someone says, hey, you need to call this guy. Hey, you need to email this person, right? I think that, that if, if there's any sort of holy grail to go after, it's how do, we, how do we drive more of that awareness and access so it's less dependent on individual people's networks and, and you know, sort of personal introductions.
1: Yeah, I mean, because then you're you're almost running into the software problem of scalability. Right. Exactly. Right. You know what I mean? And if (laughs) and if and if if the
0: person who intros someone to me while they're having a conversation, if my my face or name doesn't come, you know, pop in their in their head and come to mind, that introduction never happens. Well that could change the course of that person's, you know, startup or existence, right, dramatically. Now, maybe they get introduced to somebody who's different and better in, in for, you know, them than, than me or, or my firm or whatever, and, and that's okay. So I'm not saying that I'm, like, some special snowflake as part of the process, but I just see weakness in that very sort of serendipitous, word-of-mouth, individual, Hey, you need yeah. to talk to this guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause on top of that, um, I would say even less so than your name being thrown out is them taking the initiative to reach out. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about that too, but that's, um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a different, that's another problem to solve. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we've, tr- and we've tried to start solving it over
0: the last, you know, 15 years with, with startup accelerators. Mm-hmm. Right but I'm not a huge accelerator fan because I think accelerators treat startups as um, too much of a, a, a product in, in that they, they, they want to take the, I'll start over the best startups and the best founding teams don't need accelerators to be successful.
1: Yeah. I would, so I would, would you, I would question to, that by the time they've gotten there, there's a certain subset of people that will be there. But if we're not bringing it beforehand to bring the highway of talent that we have that has no idea that there are the opportunities to do startups or that they have the, how how to take an idea to fruition, we don't, that's the part that I think is missing early in education, you know, in, in in our high schools, let's say, of building teams and building people to, to say, hey, look, there's a way for you to bring a mark, uh, an idea to, to market or to be able to build a business or to go to people such as yourself that are angel investors that can say, okay, look, I can help you mold this and shape it. I think a lot of times by the time you have a quote unquote, a startup, you've got three or four guys or whatever it is in my, I'm just thinking through it, but like, you've got people that have already been kind of exposed in that arena. And so I think you're limiting the talent pool a little bit. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And I think by and large, because of that, you end up with mostly, and no offense to companies that have gone through accelerators or going through accelerators now, there are exceptions, but by and large, now you're talking about companies, startups that are going through accelerators that are mediocre, right? And and because the, the best startups don't need accelerators and and the best startups don't go through accelerators typically and accelerators are there to sort of manufacture a better company. So a company that comes in mediocre, the expectation is they're, they're going to come out as a good startup. Now that rarely happens because you can't running a company and starting a company is not a, a manufacturing process. Right. Yeah. And,
1: well a lot of it too though i think there's a value there to be able to say okay we've got a very good product we've got a very good team but we don't know how to run a business and i think that that's where the value can be where you would see the ones that do have success is that someone like yourself has been through it a lot of times you can you can see what's viable and what's not and a lot of times i would imagine that that comes into um the operational side of it because if you've got someone really smart that's really smart at coding it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be able to handle running a business you know yeah you know, i just don't need you i just don't know that you need an accelerator for that right no if you, no that's what yeah <laughs> if, you, if you have
0: a good board and you have good advisors right yeah. they, they would tell you hey you've got to get you've got to get a good accounting person in here you've got yeah. to get a good marketing person in here right
1: well you i would hope for operator. for them to be successful that they would realize their faults in the first place yeah, exactly. Like they, they should realize I need a good accounting person. I need a good, I need a good attorney. I need a good, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. Cause they're, they're, they're not just seeking their one problem. They're really now realizing the business has a lot of business problems that come up. And so, um, well, listen, Ryan, I, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, where do people find out more about what you're doing? Um, a couple of places, uh, if they want to check
0: out the book, it's the founders manual.com as the site for that. And then there are links to Amazon, you know, et cetera. My product firm's uh, site is awh.net, uh, and then if somebody's interested in you know um, engaging and talking about a speaking um, gig, then um,
1: RyanFrederick.biz um, has some info about that. Awesome, man! Well, listen, thank you for coming on Money Talkers with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.